Are you tired of boring lectures and textbooks on human factors and UX? Well, grab your headphones and get ready for a wild ride with the Human Factors Minute podcast. Each minute is like a mini crash course packed with valuable insights and information on various organizations, conferences, usability methods, theories, models, certifications, tools, and much more. We'll take you on a journey through the fascinating world of human factors, from the ancient history to the latest trends and developments. Listen in as we explore the field and discover new ways to enhance the user experience. From the think aloud protocol to the critical incident technique, focus groups, iterative design, we'll make sure that you're the smartest person in the room. Tune in on the 10th, the 20th, and the last day of every month for a new and interesting tidbit related to human factors. Don't miss out on the Human Factors Minute podcast, your ultimate source for all things human factors. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, hi, everybody. Hi, welcome back to Human Factors Cast. This is episode something, 299, according to my records. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Yo. And potentially some live guests. Who knows? This is a live recording. This is not something that we have planned out in the normal plan that we normally do for a show. So hopefully this will be great. But yeah, we're here. We're live. And you brought up AI. You said something about ChatGPT. Yeah. In fact, let's first start as we mean to go on. So this is very much a live show in that anybody can join in the chat anybody can get on any of the like any of the streams or whatever or however you're consuming this if you're consuming it live drop a message in that chat because you will help scope the show you will mold what the few what the next hour hour or so looks like and so we can start off by saying good evening to neil who's joined us in the chat and i think he, the idea that you think this is human error might be bold in the fact that that you think something's gone wrong. It's not really gone wrong. It just hasn't gone anywhere. We did about, what, an hour or so, maybe a couple of hours ago, where I dropped a chat and said, can we do it tonight? Yeah, all right then. And here we are. No planning, no, no forethought. So we, we are trying and experimenting with new ways of doing things, seeing if we can be more dynamic and more thrilling, living by the seat of our plans, plans and flying on Part the adrenaline. Part of plan. Yeah. It's a, it's a new way of looking at things. Do you think I've got us out of it? Do you think that's convincing? Maybe. I think part of it, like part of it is uh, making the assumption that we come into our normal shows well prepared. Yes. <laughs> and we don't always do that. We do that yeah. most of the time. But so let's talk about some AI stuff because there's some embarrassing things happening in the AI world. I want to start with the Gemini stuff. Have you seen the Gemini stuff? Oh, I haven't seen the Gemini stuff. So, and, and, okay, okay. All right, so I'll educate you. I'll send some stuff. This was, there's some, let me just say, right-wing talking points that have been, AI is erasing white people from history. <laughs> okay. Okay, that'll do that. Um, and this stems from good intentions, but this is human error. Okay, this is human error. So what's happened is Google Gemini, if you ask it to create a an image of, Let's say a historical figure like the founding fathers. Okay, that's an example. Like it won't necessarily do George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. It won't do those. Okay. 
they, they've tweaked. Okay, look, like again, this is a right wing talking point, so I'm not going to get like super into the weeds here. The idea behind this is very great. It's that Google has coded their GPT, their sorry, their image generator to be more representative of the folks who use the program. And so you see a much more diverse cast of characters when it generates images. You say, generate this, and it might come back with somebody who's not white. Mm -hmm. And that's great because that's diversity and inclusion, especially when it comes to generated images. Because you think about everything that's out there, traditional media is like, white dominated. And so what they're trying to do is tweak that algorithm to be a little bit more representative of the true uh, population. And I think that's great. What's happening, though, is when people request images of historical figures, actual figures, yes, actual figures, you'll get like a a, a black Thomas Jefferson. And it, it's just so they've issued a statement. And I have to find the statement because I do want to read this. So while you're finding that, just because I only realized this recently. So Gemini is the new bard, isn't it? Gemini so, is the new bard. Yes, yeah. that's correct. So the uh, the official statement here, geez, where's a, where's the official statement? Because I don't want to misrepresent. This is journalism. This is journalism live. Live journalism. So another more extreme case is you could say something along the lines of show me a, a World War II German soldier. Okay. All right. So the official statement here is looking for it, trying to find it. It's incredibly hard to find. Actually, if anybody has that link available, please let me know. That, that, that's this is great podcasting. Yes. Thanks, Neil. Appreciate that. Decent like sarcasm there. Okay, here it is. We're aware that Gemini is offering inaccuracies in some historical image generation depictions. We're working to improve these depictions immediately. Gemini's AI image generation does generate a wide range of people, and that's generally a good thing because people around the world use it, but it's missing the mark here. Yes, I think... Uh... Fair enough. At least when, when things like this are happening, they're picking up. It's a bit like, so the other one that went slightly mock this week has been ChatGPT one of our content favorites to go back to. It seems to have had a bit of a minor meltdown where people would be conversing with it. It just starts coming out with gibberish, starts speaking Spanglish without any prompting. It just goes into it. And then this is where I think it's got some people slightly freaked out by suggesting that it's in the room with them. And so some of the messages that you read in, in the reports, it just starts shouting things like happy listening at you and, and things like this. So basically, they had a lot of people started reporting it. So OpenAI have then noted it as an issue. They haven't really said, said why it's done this, but they're monitoring it and they're looking at it. Some are suggesting that they, essentially ChatGPT has a temperature setting. Mm. Oh, yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. So if it's low, it tends to behave really normally, rationally, blah, blah, blah. And if you set the temperature a bit high, then it can be a bit more rethinking, a bit more diverse, a bit more unusual. And so they suggest, people are suggesting, and I think this is guesswork, it's not a natural thing, that the, te that the temperature setting have been raised a bit. It's not the first time that that's happened with, with ChatGPT. 
it's happened before and then they've, they've raised it, they've reined it in a bit to make that work. But it's interesting to see that there's a number of AI tools that are trying to, or are breaking into the mainstream, are still having issues and bits of meltdown and things like that. It makes you, certainly from our perspective, from an HF perspective, it does question, or it, how do we know that when we're using it, it's actually giving us good output or what we consider good output for what we want. And it isn't just basically giving you curveballs because it's, it's going either its temperature's a bit high or it's just going slightly off the rails. There's nothing we can do that except assume or look at the output that we're getting and being able to understand whether it, it's good stuff or not. This would be a good time to check in. Are you still using ChatGPT in some of your day-to-day stuff? Because I know we had talked about it. Yeah, you are? Yeah, so I'm playing playing with it on a number of fronts, actually. So one is I sort of go a bit hot and cold. I tend to use it if time is a massive factor trying, thinking and stuff like that. So I'm still using it in that sort of kickstart role that I have Mm -hmm. done. One of the things that you've been able to do more recently, I think we might have spoke about it on, on the last ones, but you can now start creating your own custom GPTs. Yes. And so I've been experimenting with, can I get different types of HF practitioner sorted out? So, for example, human practice integration. So the ability to model a project, look at the creating your HFI plan, creating the evidence for a case report and things like that to see if I could actually run, use it as a as my HFI engineer in the room. So I can chuck in and say, I've got this sort of project. And so it'll come back and the first thing it'll ask you is, what's the project name? Um, who's the HFI lead? And start building in some, asking you for some of that knowledge and get you some of that elicitation going on, understand who the stakeholders are. And then it'll start then pushing stuff out at you saying, have you, do you know this information? Just start trying fill gaps and then understand where the gaps in the knowledge are and therefore understand what phase of the project you're in and give you some prompt on where you should go and what you do. So I've, I've been playing with it a bit like that. Um, but equally, oh, and then the integration of some of the imaging now is interesting. I had to go this week at seeing if I could integrate SysML and do some enterprise architecture type stuff with it. Turns out that it can't draw SysML diagrams. They're terrible. But yeah, so I'm still playing with it. I'm probably not as, I keep on having to remember to use it as opposed to it being a, a huge Go part to. of my work stream. But it's not one of these things that I, I sit there and go, I need to do this. I need to do it really quickly. Oh, this is normally what I'd use ChatGPT for. Not, right, it's the first tool I go to. So mm-hmm. what about you? Are you, are you? Have you gone off it or have you found other things with it? Or do you, um, is it? It's fallen off a lot for me in terms of my overall usage. Like it used to be very much like, how can I build around this? How can I integrate this into workflows and processes? And the more I see of it, the more it breaks in ways that are fascinating. (laughs) Just say fascinating. (laughs) But I think because of its infancy, like I'm still an early adopter. I'm still somebody who follows the trends and will is doing active research into the AI space and is excited about it as a tool. I've stopped using it so much for larger scale things. And it's more like quick requests, which I think is what it's built for actually, but it's a fancy, fancy autocomplete. And 
when you do these massive prompts, building it up to do something that it's not built to do, you, you got to have to, it just takes, it almost takes more time to go back to the thing and try to have a conversation with it to get you the output that you want than it would be to just hammer on the project and get it done. Like it, it is one of those things you mentioned generation of like diagrams. Have you seen as since we're talking about the AI stuff, have you seen Sora? No, not yet. I've heard about it. I haven't explored it. Okay. So I, I think we can show these since they're AI generated, but what I should do here is, uh, yeah, here, I'll go ahead and share some of this. So Sora, the idea behind Sora here, this article comes to us from MIT tech review. Sora is a video generation device and or, or a service. I don't device, not a device. This is still and, an, it's an open AI tool, isn't it? It is an open AI tool. Yeah. So this is an extension of GPT. And you can see here this video is like a drone shot of this couple walking through streets of a city and it's snowing outside and it looks pretty convincingly real. Mm. Okay. Yeah, let's go through the list here. So this is another thing generated by Sora here. This is a little like cute kind of Pixar-y character playing with fire, candle <laughs> melting. You got another one here. I'm not sure what this one is here. It looks like a seafloor, maybe. What is this? Like a stylized seafloor. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. This is all done with prompting, which is actually really interesting to, to think about that it, you put in a prompt and uh, I'm trying to see some more stuff here. Some mammoths. Where we use like B-roll in things, this takes the B-roll generation to a whole new level, doesn't it? it? It really does. I'm quite impressed with this. I was also quite impressed with ChatGPT when it came out. And my impression has, it's still transformational. Let's not be, I think, I have a lot of thoughts on AI and the trends that are happening right now in AI, specifically around adoption of AI in companies and the AI strategy being employed at companies and how that's maybe not the best option right now. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> Lots of thoughts. I don't want to get into them. Not here, not now, but I do have them. <laughs> What is interesting on the Sora page, if you go and look, if you go and look at it, they're actually highlighting or recognizing that there are safety issues with what they're now doing, and so they've got an entire section dedicated around saying, basically, we're not going to make Sora available until we are sure that that it's safe to use. That they're red teaming it with domain experts in areas like misinformation, hate, content bias. And so they, they're using red teaming approaches to, to test it and things like that. So it's good from that perspective that we're learning or that they're learning about how these things can be deployed, how they should be deployed, and how to keep people safe while, while we deploy them. But you look at some of the, even just flicking down this page, looking at some of these videos there, they are quite impressive. impressive. They're just, I'm watching one here around, the prompt is the camera follows behind a white vintage SUV with black roof rack. And it looks, apart from the, the spelling on, on the thing, it still suits, it still can't spell. But the... Danver. The, the, yeah, that's the one. That actually might be a brand name, but I, I'm assuming trying to say Danger. No, I don't know. But the, the, dust, be, the dust being thrown up, the, uh, the terrain it's going through, 
hang on. You know what? As long as we're talking about it, we probably should bring these back up. Let me, so once again, here's the Sora. Here's Sora on OpenAI. And this has a lot more stuff that we can look at here. So this is, and I like that they actually show the prompts here. So this is a stylish woman walks down a Tokyo street filled with a warm, glowing neon and animated city signage. She wears a black leather jacket, a long red dress and black boots and carries a black purse. She wears sunglasses and red lipstick. She walks confidently and casually. The street is damp and reflective, creating a mirror effect of the colorful lights. Many pedestrians walk about. It's crazy to think that this person is not real. This place is not real. This is all generated by AI. And uh, that, to me, is the interesting part. It's fascinating. Here's the woolly mammoth that we saw. What is this one? A movie trailer featuring the adventures of a 30-year-old spaceman wearing a red wool-knitted motorcycle helmet. Blue sky, <laughs> sail de- desert film. Vivid colors. This is, this is pretty cool. You could do some fun stuff with this. Prompt. Drone view of waves crashing against the rugged cliffs along Big Sur's Gary Point Beach. Crashing blue waves create white-tipped waves. But again, it goes back to what you were saying earlier in that so much effort needs to be put into prompt engineering. They Because you, you can't just... I mean, you have to curate prompts, don't you? you what we've learned quite a lot is of, you will rarely get the prompt right first time. You need to hone it and make it work for you. And sometimes the by the time you've put all the effort into writing the prompt, you could have done it yourself first time. And, and um, it's great for repeatable tasks. If you just need to change a few variables for something mm-hmm. and you change those variables and the prompt works, then it's great. But it's like the one-off tasks that it's just yeah. not as great for. Photorealistic close-up of two pirate ships battling each other as they sail inside a cup of coffee. I mean, that that is pretty impressive. <laughs> A young man in his 20s is sitting on a piece of cloud in the sky reading a book. Does what it says in the tin. It does. It does. And I love this one, though. Historical footage of California during the gold rush. I love that. That's crazy. Yeah. And it does look like a drone shot just going through that type of thing. So, yeah, so I think it, it has proven, considering we do talk about AI quite a lot, and I think quite rightly because it is evolving, it's doing its stuff. There's so many human factors with AI. It truly is this wild west of human factors and how it integrates with humans and technology and just this fascinating front that I we actually discussed this on the show a while back where we were taking a look at the bleak the bleak 2023 and the outlook for 2024 and looking at what the trends were. Do you remember that episode? Because I do. We talked about some of the things that Jacob Nielsen was talking about in terms Mm -hmm. of where the the trends are going. And AI is definitely one of them. And people are going to be looking for folks who have been researching AI because there are so many points of failure for AI. It is, but it's also organizational as well, isn't it? If you remember a friend of the show, Kate Preston, when she came on, and she's currently doing her PhD in the use of AI in, in the health sector, or more specifically around hospitals. And one of the big takeaways that she keeps on coming back to is that actually the AI can do an awful lot of stuff as we, we use it in various amounts to do really cool stuff. But unless the organization is ready to use it, then you're never going to exploit it to its full or anywhere near its full potential. You get pockets of people using it 
to maybe do what we've done in the past, do generation of scripts, generation of largely not, I'm not going to call it inconsequential, but when you consider the power of what it could do, we still got to do some quite mundane things. And unless the organization is ready to actually adopt some of this stuff, we're nowhere near it. The other big winner in the AI thing, actually, which we've never really talked about, is the chip companies behind it. And that's come to the fore this week with NVIDIA. NVIDIA. Their stock price jumped 16% this week. And I, this was suggested on, on LinkedIn by my good friend David Thompson to talk about it. And lit, literally, I'd put the prompt on, on LinkedIn saying, we're having a chat tonight, give us some topics to talk about. He literally just come back with NVIDIA exclamation mark. So I went back to him and said, what about them? And it wasn't until I, I then did a quick search. And it was like, actually, they've had a massive cost boost. It's really interesting that them in particular, because I'm suffering from the lack of a decent NVIDIA graphics card to produce some of my podcast stuff, which I, I didn't realize how much I was relying on the NVIDIA publication, publisher suite and some of the background tools to make what I was doing more efficient. And now I've got a new desktop box that is a small form factor, so I can't get a full-size graphics card in there. I can't get a decent RTX graphics card. Therefore, I can't use half the, the NVIDIA tools. It's just really interesting seeing how that how that, uh, that has flown through. So NVIDIA is one of the big chip makers who are benefiting from this surge in artificial intelligence because we need powerful processing chips to, make, to push some of this stuff out. Okay. We got a really interesting one here on LinkedIn. Oh, thanks, Trevor. Yeah. No, that's uh, again good good friend of ours and in, i recently interviewed him on 1202 and he's asking thoughts on how to use ai in defense behind the firewall so the biggest actually there is lots of work going on in the uk defense side of things there's a organization that's out there called the defense ai center which you can find they've, they've been pushing some stories about out on linkedin about what they've been doing fundamentally it's about the sharing of knowledge within defense behind the firewall that the AI can learn from and and how they can control that, how they can trust that. I think I'm probably not going to be amazing anybody with my massive intellectual insight when I say that there's a lot of issues within defense, within the defense realm. And I think no matter which country you look at, share not every, just because they're with the UK defense or US defense, even within all these people, there's a, that we don't share information easily. And so when we want to use AI for either analytics or anything like that, we can't use it efficiently because we don't share the information. If we could find the ways of sharing information, even common information, within defense, then we could use AI because it, it would then learn. It would be able to learn about this stuff. But you, then you've got the issues are, are on the need to know aspects. How do we make sure that AI only knows what it needs to know and therefore the people who can access the information? Yeah, here's another point that goes exactly with what you're saying here, Barry. I find it unable to provide citations to what information it gives that relies on open data only. And so, yes, I agree. I think that that's absolutely right, that there's multiple ways in which we can dissect this AI and defense conversation. One of which is how do you use AI as a human factors researcher in your process and tools? And then there's the, I think the larger issue of 
how do you communicate and use AI, communicate with and use AI as a tool for various defense capabilities? And that's a tricky one to talk about. <laughs> Certainly the first one <laughs> is a bit easier. So how to use AI as, a, as an HF tool because we're doing it already. As long as you're really cognizant of the material you're, you're feeding in and making sure that it is not classified, or you can talk around an issue to ChatGPT in such a way that mm -hmm. you're not putting any restricted or um, confidential information into it, you can get the sort of output you're looking for. Because really what we're looking for is in terms of process and things like that. The only way to go to the second point that you made, and I'm going to tread slightly carefully, is... If we want to use AI to get the best out of data within the defense boundary, so behind the firewall, the AI has to sit behind the firewall and it has to have access to that data and it has otherwise you're not going to get the use out of it. And therefore, if you're not going to trust it with the information to make it worthwhile, there's no point in doing it, one would suggest. And it's going to be tricky. It's going to be really difficult until because it's not just a it's not just a technical issue. Because we can we could build an AI. In fact, AIs do exist that you know that work within boundaries. That's fine. It's whether it's that human machine trust issue, the trust in that that human that human machine teaming piece, which is why it's such a popular subject now. Around how you a trust the out output you're getting, but that the system is with working within the bounds and it hasn't leaked out anywhere or it's not leaking information because that's risky knowledge is power quite literally yeah i think that it's an absolutely fascinating question that trevor's brought up because yeah there are so many facets to it once you start unpicking it yeah um, there really is it's like how do you it's just how not, do you, not just technical the whole cybersecurity issue how do you make sure that the person accessing whatever AI system is the person that needs to be right. You can get around that through various forms of verification, but then also like the diffusion of responsibility for decisions that are made. If an AI were to recommend a decision in defense, I'm being very vague here intentionally, but if, <laughs> a, if, if an AI system were to recommend a course of action in defense and a decision maker followed through with that course of action and it led to terrible outcomes, who would be at fault? Would it be the human or would it be the AI or would it be the company who made the AI or where does the liability stand? And I think for a lot of those reasons, you're not seeing there's that's the human trust piece of it. Can the human trust the output of the AI in that it is a great decision are there things that the human has knowledge of that the AI system does not have knowledge of that sort of, I guess, peppers the judgment of the outcome from the AI system? There's so many things here. So if, the, what, if a what thing the, were to do a thing. Yeah. One of the ways I abstract it out at the moment when I, I've, actually, I've been working with this problem recently is the Google Maps analogy. When SatNav, Satellite Navigation first started coming out, or just even mapping route, route finding tools you would put in the route you put where you wanted to go and you would check that route you would it would give you the route from a to b and you would go actually i wouldn't go that way i would do this i would do that when google gives you 
when Google first started giving it the things, if you if it sent you a way that you weren't sure about, you would go the way that you knew uh, because you didn't trust it. You it, it might send you down silly roads and this other. But as it's now getting better and it's becoming more normal to use it, just trust the Google. Trust where it's going to send you. You do, you rarely, even if you know the route, you do, you tend to use language like, "Oh, well, it must know traffic. It must know. It must have a reason why it's sending me down this route." And the analogy here is that right now, if we were to use AI in defense quite seriously, or more more so than say we are at the moment, you're going to have that bit where people are not going to trust the new technology. They're going to check it. They're going to back it up. They're going to drill into right. Why did you give me that answer? Why have you made the decision that you've made? Fast forward five years, ten years maybe, and we then into that situation of the you're hypothesizing on was it spits you out an answer, go do this, and, no, and you don't challenge it. You just say, oh, it must have told me to do it for a good reason. That's the part, That's why we're using these tools. It's to speed up decision-making. It's to do this, that, and the other. This system told me to go and do this, so I've gone and do it. And, there, and you could have some quite significant consequences. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be quite the ride. Oh, it's so fun to talk about defense and skirting the issues. And Yeah. Um, good questions. Good questions. I'm trying to work out whether we can de- dive into that <laughs> with it without me losing my security clearance. I don't think we can. I, th- I think we've got to be losing my job. But I think it is It is going to be a, an, in- an interesting five or ten years because, like I say, the technology is pretty much getting there. It's now the human issues that we need to deal with. Yeah. And also in things like it not having meltdowns. I know there's, at least in, I can't say what the training, I I do know that there's like already AI awareness training. Oh, this is a good, this is a good change of subject here, Barry. Do you want to get into this? Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our monthly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and access to the full library of Human Factors Minute, a weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Like yeah, it, 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 it'll get us out of some awkward conversations. It'll get us. To, it'll get out of a tight spot. Thank you so much, Dibs. I love this. All right, Dibs on YouTube. Here's here's a different track. What industries do you think human factors should or could move into that we don't currently? This is interesting and fascinating for so many reasons because in some cases you don't know that human factors is being applied. If it's being applied correctly, then you don't maybe notice it as as you should maybe we could talk about things that we know of i felt the clearance demon circling thanks dibs <laughs> so there's one area which i think is fascinating there is bits of hf being done in it already but it's still so i relatively immature and that's the farming and agriculture 
industry. Mm. There is, because when you think about it, historically, farms were run by people, by families, handed down from father to son, mother to daughter, that type of thing. So it, it would be, hand, farms would be handed on. As technology has, and historically, there was always hundreds of people working on a farm. You'd have, everything was manual labor from plowing to planting to everything. Everything was done by people all of the time in all weathers, 365 days a year. And that's like animals, all that sort of stuff. We now have the case where there's so much automation going on in the farming industry. The use of tractors where you've got large bits of machinery plowing fields so one person can plow like not just one field in a day but multiple fields in a day but to prep them and then sow them and do all that sort of stuff and that's even getting automated as they can use gps to make sure that they get really good tight seeding and things like that but as we get more and more automation bigger machinery doing things we have less people within a particular farm within a particular space they now have less people so if there's an accident there's actually less people around to raise the alarm, it's harder to get help to people. And typically, the accidents they have, because it's involving big, dangerous machinery, blades and crushing things and big bits of metal, the injuries tend to be quite severe. So there is some research going on. So I did an interview on 1202 with a PhD student called Jill Boots, who's done work into this historically. And, and I'm because of that interview and listening to one of her lecturers, a lady I believe called Amy Irwin, researching in this area, I just find it thoroughly fascinating. And then, yeah, Dibs has come back in the um, in the chat saying they've spoken about, talked to farmers about this. It is one of the most dangerous injuries, but it's hard to get the message across. It is cultural as well as anything else. And I think that's true because, again, going back to the point I made at the start, where you've, it, it, it's a family business that are handed down. So the, the training hands down, it's not like there's very, or comparatively few people go when they're growing up, go just randomly go and buy a farm and start farming. It's something you're, you're born into. And so there's all of the issues that that has when it hands down. What's your, your thoughts on the, uh, on the farming industry, Nick? Yeah, are, you, I, are, you, are you a burgeoning uh, farmer in? in I'm not a burgeoning farmer, but I am pro-human factors in agriculture. Uh, We've actually done an episode on this. I I believe it was like close to 200 that we talked about smart farms. And that was a fantastic episode. I really enjoyed so much that I remember it. That that says a lot. It's an interesting discussion because you're right. There's With all this automation going on, how do you get the farmers involved in or even farmhands involved in process and improving those process and for safety reasons, for ability reasons, X, Y, and Z. I think that's really interesting. To answer the original question, I think there's there's a couple other industries that I actually really feel passionate that human factors could benefit from. The first thing that came to my mind was legal. Yeah. Okay. So how many times have you read a, like a terms of service or gotten a legal document or something and nothing is clear? Oh, um, yeah. there, there could be like a ton of, I'm just thinking about making things easier for the end person, like understanding what the consequences of not paying this thing is or what happens if you don't show up to court or making court process easier, mm-hmm. making, making law 
easier to understand, not only for those who participate in judgment and witness and testimony, but also for defendants, everybody involved. I think there's so many opportunities with legal that from lawyers to attorney, like everybody who's involved in this process, there's so many things going on that human factors could really have a huge impact on. So that's the first thing I thought. And I also, construction is another one that I thought of, but it's great to see in the comments here, Dib said, uh, construction is the one that I'm trying to break into at the moment. So that's great. I'm glad you're trying to break into construction because construction is another thing. You can imagine the safety of not only the tools and the, the equipment that they use on site, but also the process and procedure by which the project managers of a construction site start to organize all that stuff. The other thing that I immediately thought of, Barry, and I'm surprised that you didn't bring this up, is environmental conservation and sort of the human factors of green energy and climate change and all those things, right? So I think you actually had an effort on this a while back. How's that effort going? Is it still an ongoing thing? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so the whole issue around climate ergonomics is, is still ongoing. We've got a, in fact, I've got a PhD student about to start with me to study um, support for um, uh, episodic thinking um, and, and climate change. So there is uh, definitely work going on around that. And I'm working with a, a Professor Andrew Thatcher um, from South Africa, part of the IEA. Um, and we're currently writing chapter of a book on climate ergonomics and, and how we can do something with it so yes the the climate thing is that's possible i didn't think of it straight away because i, I think i'm already there but then i would so yes that is definitely going on but it, again it's one of these things and that links to one of the other other areas that i would like to see human factors get more involved in and that's just government in general government decision making and government delivery policy yeah absolutely the way that we get elected representatives to see, hear, and represent people, their constituents, et cetera, et cetera. I think they could do with a healthy dose of understanding user engagement, understanding how workers describe, workers turn, all that sort of stuff, I think, is something that the government could do a lot more of and would benefit from. Yeah, that, yeah. That was uh, the, the policy side, because when I think of government, I think of, oh, DOD has a bunch of policy and procedure that they fought, they have human factors standards. And but when you talk about government uh, representation, yes, absolutely. There's there's ways in which human factors can affect policy. And I think there's been s uh, some large strides here in stateside, at least, and not in the UK necessarily. But but Neil who's in the chat right now, who I talked to at HFES last year, talked a lot about the GRC and how they're doing some good work to represent human factors as a science when it comes to policymaking. And so that's a great effort that we're doing here. I don't know if anything could be kicked up and spun up like that in the UK, but worldwide, we need more of that representation. We need a seat at the table because, yeah. It, the, from the legislative side, uh, how you manage with them and how the legislative side should, should function more is what Neil says in chat here. I also want to, since we're talking about Neil, he made a funny here and uh, I laughed. I have to call attention to it. Other industries that human factors could be influential or what was the original question? <laughs> impactful <laughs> to is commercial or recreational submarines. 
Um, like two episodes on that. <laughs> yes, you're not wrong. But actually, I, one of the big takeaways from that was around legislation again was the fact that the submarines are not regulated in any way or in any meaningful way that, that meant that this could happen. Yeah, it's regulation is everything. Mm-hmm. Dibs, I, as I like again, the human factors of PMQs, so Prime Minister's questions we have in the UK. So every Wednesday lunchtime, the, there is a, I think it's an hour session for any parliamentarian to ask the Prime Minister questions. And the leader of the opposition gets six questions. The leader of the, the SP, I think, gets two questions, uh, and and basically they, they can throw any questions at them, and it ends up just being more of a pantomime than it does that you get meaningful answers, or you, you don't even really get meaningful questions if that is trying to make headlines out of it. Yes, probably avoiding the human factors elements of that is probably a good idea, or as we've seen this week in our parliament, actually, the balance of power is really quite an interesting observation. But this is more ecology than it is. HF itself, because we had our entire parliament break down last night in a way that I've just never seen before. That they couldn't, for the reason for the, for somebody trying to do the right thing, in this case the Speaker of the House, could end up quite losing his job because of it. Which was just fascinating. Yeah, I could talk about that for hours, but I'll be absolutely very little to do with HF and more about my utter fascination with politics. Oh, yeah. That's... Which we have explored in the past. We have explored that. <laughs> and that's a fascinating discussion, too. Uh... Oh. Man, that's a good that's a good topic. I'm trying to think of other areas in which those are the two that immediately stuck out to me was the climate ergonomics and the uh, the law. And I think those stuck out to me because it's not immediately apparent if work is being done there, especially from the consumer side of law. I don't know. You get all these tax. For- it's tax season. So you get all these tax forms. What do I owe? You know what I owe you. Why is all this? That's half policy, half law, half. But then the law comes down when you don't pay it. I'm just thinking like, there's got to be. Anyway, well, th- those are the things that I thought of. But the uh, some some of the stretch things that I thought of, but I know are being considered is like education or ed tech. And I, I know we've breached this and I know there's work being done in that space. Maybe I just bring it up because I'm fascinated by it and would love to learn more. But I think there's really some roadblocks when it comes to like children's human factors that are mostly due to experimental regulations and stuff. So you can't like test processes and procedures without going through an IRB. And because they're a protected population, the risk of engaging in an experiment has to be outweigh the and so when you're when you're experimenting on a child and education is at stake it's like test what is versus um something else and the risk is that the something else intervention is going to make the child worse off than if they had just continued on and so that risk has to be mitigated in as many ways as it can be. And so because of that, I think there's probably not as much research done in the education space. But that's another interesting one to me is that how can we use human factors in in education and outreach? I was thinking, what about the music industry? For playing musical instruments, I've seen my son is doing learning drumming at the moment. 
drumming is a very loud therefore it's it's not necessarily great on the old hearing and should he be wearing ear defenders when he's drumming because he's very loud but also posture when you're sat at, sat at the drum kit or you're you've got your brass instrument of choice slung around your body your guitar when you're sat at the piano or the keyboard are you sat at the right height and all, all that sort of stuff yeah I, as i started unpicking it they're mostly physical and what you call like old traditional ergonomics there's a lot of stuff there to play with but then you get into bands so then you're talking about collaboration and teaming and all that sort of stuff so you're looking at looking at them sort of relationships and things like that as well is is there stuff there that we, we could unpick i don't know what the answer is here's a call for the community does anybody in the human factors community know of a human factors practitioner band i would love to like commission a human factors <laughs> only band to write an original human factors cast intro song that would be so awesome <laughs> what would you call a human factors band the ergos the ergogos um okay. yeah. how about the ergogos uh, <laughs> call it user error yeah what what type of band would it be would it be a sort of a, a nice easy listening or is it a frustrated heavy rock heavy <laughs> the world's biggest heavy death metal, metal. death yeah. metal I, yeah i can imagine i can imagine hang on here's speaking of ai let's bring it back what would give me 10 names 10 great names for a band who does human factors oh i would say actually has got to be able to write you some lyrics as well I was writing an article for The Ergonomist and got it to write some jokes for me. They were terrible. Yeah, I'm sure. I got got it to write poetry as well, and that wasn't any better. Whilst you're waiting for that to come up, the other slightly more serious one... (laughs) uh, Okay. Let's not do serious stuff. Let's crack... Cognitive load. That works. Okay. Feedback loops. Nah, that's boring prototype punk gesture to salt yes i I really like cognitive load and uh, oh are there folks that do a jam session at hfbs that'd be great if they made a band and the interface incident cognitive load still seems to be i like cognitive load if anyone wants to take that band name and run with it (laughs) i'm giving you permission since i didn't make it chat gpt did so another area that i think would be worth looking at is is the prison service because the way that you have to what you're doing is actively restricting somebody's liberty and that in of itself is a is a big deal if you're restricting their liberty and having to do things like restrain them and things like that how are you making sure that you are You've got to look after people whilst you're doing that. Yes, Martin, it, it does. Yes. Chat's on fire tonight. I, you guys are great. Thank you tonight. This is amazing. I, the comments tonight have just been top notch. Thank you. You're making me laugh a whole lot. I appreciate this. Martin says, sounds like a grinder handle, probably to cognitive load. <laughs> Which reminds me, Martin, yes, I am coming up next week. We need to pick a day next week to get together. Just had to throw that out there public interest except wednesday all right so yours we've been doing over an hour already do you realize that i do yeah no it's great 
Hang on. As we're paused here, just another quick reminder. Hey, if y'all want to be part of the conversation, video on or not, you don't need to. You don't even need a great mic. If you just want to be here with us talking about some of this stuff, there's a little QR code right up here that lets you be a caller. There's a little private chat. Once you get in, you can let us know what you want to talk about, camera on or off, and we'll chat with you in that before you're even on here. So don't worry. It's not going to throw you right on the show. If you want to be part of the conversation tonight, you can do so right here. Otherwise, you can leave a chat like y'all have been doing. That has been great so far. And the last thing I'll mention that if you want to yell obscenities into a void or your thoughts on any of the human factor stuff tonight, you can leave us a voicemail. We might talk about it on next week's show. So you can get to either of those links right up there is the QR code. I'm going to bring up the be a live caller one more time and I'll leave that up there. All right. I think that about covers it. All right. What now? <laughs> Where did we get to? We were still talking. So we were talking about you and different fields for a pl- So could you flip it? What fields would you just not apply human factors to? I, I know we say you can apply, apply human factors to everything, and that's a given. But if there's a field that you just turn around and say, actually, no, we're just not going to provide any value to it, what would be one that you would choose? Space exploration. Why? Interesting. We don't need any of that. No, that's the field of role. I mean, that, 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 that's just... It's, it's just we don't bit. need it there. No, I was, okay. That was, a, that was a sarcastic remark. I'm sorry. It didn't land. I don't know. Let me think about that for a second. Let me think about if we were to eliminate human factors from any industry, what industry would we eliminate it from? Is that pretty much? Oh, pretty much. Yeah. Oh, and would nobody would notice the difference, <laughs> which is, I think, slightly different. So there's. In fact, you could argue with most things that people don't notice the difference. I'll possibly pose something a bit harder than I thought was going to be to answer. Because I was thinking about things like, whilst we talk about agriculture, um, just growing your allotment, growing vegetables in your allotment. But then you've got how you tend to the plants and things. and that's Let me rephrase your question just a little bit. Go on then. If you were to apply it to a global industry something that's worldwide, that would have an impact on a lot of people, but would maybe not understand the connection of human factors being applied in that industry to their own circumstance. Does that make sense? Something, the example I'm trying to get at here is supply chain logistics. Okay. You, okay. you, you apply human factors to it. It works out better. Yeah. People might notice supply chain is better in the sense that things are on shelves, and but they won't really recognize that human factors was the reason why. They might just think the trucks were late or X, Y, and Z. And so that might be one industry where you have this worldwide thing happening that human factors is a part of, but is not necessarily like observed by the end user of supply chain logistics, who could be anybody. And I think the same could be said for. Isn't that I would throw that back and say, isn't that true of anything that we do? Because you could argue you could take HF out of any project and the project's not going to stop. And that's the that's the problem we've got, isn't it? That's the constant argument, because you only notice. I guess it's the kind of argument I was making is the you only notice HF when it's when it when it when things go wrong. If you've done HF well, you don't know it's been there. But nobody goes, Oh, that was such a beautiful interface to work with, unless you're an HF UXer. 
is really interesting. Because now that we've played around with this, I, I there's lots of examples, I think, exactly like the one you just described, that we make it better, but would still go ahead without us, because it has done for, for many years. Cheese production. But if you're producing cheese in a factory, then we're down to factory thing. If you're producing cheese just in, in your own back garden type of affair, you'd have to have a big garden, obviously. That's interesting. Esports. Yeah, I saw I saw esports too, and I'm wondering how, because UX is done in games, maybe not as efficiently as it could because of the gaming industry, but engagement. I've thought about engagement and like media as a human factors issue as well, and I tie engagement and media together. I know they're separate, mm-hmm. but I bring them up together because media is built off of engagement or consumption of their, it is more entertainment now than it is true reporting. At least that's my feeling on it. It's a whole mess that probably should be addressed at some point, but engagement is interesting. What about just pure journalism, full stop? Journalism. So journalism doesn't, would not actively, you could not, I don't think you could go to a journalist and say, if we apply human factors principles to journalism, we would make their job better. No, it might make their job harder. Yeah, well, but you, the, end, the end user, the consumer, us, we would benefit from it. Would we? I mean, what, I'm, anybody in the chat, correct me as well. I cannot think of what you would, what would you apply from an HF perspective to a journalist, to them doing their... Finding a story, getting a story, doing it, and put and putting the story out there. How would we make what they do better? I don't think we could. Without taking, because you could argue journalism is an art form. Therefore, okay, I like that. So Dibs has just come up with the error side of things. So the reason if they get things, do we add uh, your things in there for their fact checking to make sure that they're not telling? God forbid that we ever suggest that journalists tell lies. The software that they use, that's true, yes. So if they're using word processors and search techniques and all that sort of stuff, you're right, yes, usability. Uh, training. Training. Training, yes, okay, yeah, training. Journalistic integrity. I'm still trying to get down to that bare bones of their job, though, of them going to squirrel out the, uh, they've, they've, got a, they've got the smell of a story. They go and do research. So how they do research, we can make the research more efficient, their research processes. Mm-hmm. Because they need to do the fact checking, they need to do all that sort of stuff. How they put, they, obviously, when they then put the story together, they, then they use the software and things like that. So that's something. So yeah, you've all just quite happily shot my my idea out. This is so. a great discussion. I love this. More more of shooting Barry down, please. This is. Yeah, that, that is I saw. I, I then used the idea of journalists because it's artistic. Therefore, we improve artists. I absolutely think you can improve artist work by applying human factors. Exhibit one, traditional ergonomics, a paintbrush. Can you make a paintbrush more efficient by applying ergonomics to it? I think the answer is yes. I think an art station, yes. The output, maybe not so much, but the output is a product of the input that went into it. And so if you're using tools to assist in your artwork, but I've never seen on on Amazon that bastion of truth. 
Everybody sells ergonomic chairs or ergonomic pens. Or I've never seen, I don't think, an ergonomic paintbrush. All right, let's look for it. Le- let's, leading, let's do a live search. Let's do a live search. Leading, leading to the argument that actually if if nobody's been able to make some like really quick books off a uh, just chuck the word ergonomic in front of a paintbrush and come up with a really radical design. It's an autocomplete in my Google search. Mm. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> I've now got an image of like maybe a paintbrush that wraps around your finger or something like that. Here's the most sort of extreme example that I can find. It looks like a like a pistol grip. Okay. Mm-mm. Here, I'll share an image so that way we can all get a visual on this. Whilst you're doing that, just to loop back to the uh, the journalist one, both Dibs and Martin have come around and highlighted journalism is, is storytelling, interviewing, interrogation, narrative structure, and things. Oh, that looks like one of the uh, the different types of mouse you can get, isn't it? With that yeah. sort of, you, so you're pushing the web of your the the web of your thumb into it. Yeah. So maybe not necessarily for art projects, but if we're talking about art, I absolutely think that the tools and processes that we use to create art, if they have human factors influence on those products, then that directly impacts the outcome of the art. Because if you're more comfortable creating art, that creates a different mindset for you as you're creating this piece of art. And the opposite is true too. If you use something that is abrasive to use, your art might come out differently because it gives you a different feeling when you use it. And so, okay, yep, there it is. <laughs> Thanks, Martin. So you have to win the win the prize. You're there. Fair play. You know what? He brings up an interesting point, though, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say this word: teledildonics. And I think there's an amazing opportunity for human factors in that space, and just that whole adult adult entertainment, adult products. Yeah. I think there's an amazing, there's a lot. I bring this story up every once in a while, but there was a, I don't want to specify how I know this person. <laughs> they worked on an adult website and and they could not show. We've talked about this. Their work uh, yeah. in their portfolio. And so they replaced all the thumbnail images of the website that they worked on with kittens. Um, and of course, you know, changed everything. And it was a kitten website that you could go and watch cute cats on. So there is work being done on it. There's, um, all I'll say is that there is a 12 or two interview that I'm trying to secure at the moment. And it'll be the first time I I would have to put an E on the, uh, I'd have to put an explicit on the uh, the episode. Because I just think it's fascinating. And I think I saw a, this sounds really bad. So I think on YouTube, all about, (laughs) let's just go YouTube. It's probably about about user testing that was just the, I was like, that's just brilliant. That's exactly what we're doing. We, I would love to do like a conference paper on this and go and present it at so EHF 25 or something. Probably would have not like past president anymore. <laughs> I don't bring the whole organization distribute. I just think it, it would be interesting. Yes, exactly that. Neil, just you, the use of um, quotes is very apt. But yeah, so if that, how can say that comes off? That that sounds very wrong. If this interview happens, then I'll let you know whether we actually get to publish it or not. Okay, so we've, when, we've found we, a lot of industries. I say we were talking about stuff before Martin took us off at a, a tangent. What were we talking about? Oh, we were talking about art as an output of human yes. factors. Yes, yeah. We were because actually, Dib sort of mentions about miniature painting, different thing, and the the picture you put up. I used to do a fair bit of the Warcraft, the miniatures, painting them. And I had devices that you could then 
used because holding the miniatures is quite hard work, but it was like a thing that you could put the base into and it actually give you a handle to then use to be able to move the, the piece around so you, you can paint it. So that is using use of tools to make yeah. it. Yeah, when I craft, I use helping hands to solder. That's another tool and that's part of my art. Another example here, th- think about digital art. Okay, you use Adobe Photoshop or Microsoft Paint. There's a difference in the tool that you use and the caliber of output that you're able to get with those tools, which is why when you look at some of the Microsoft Paint drawings and there's that's wow, that's really impressive that you did that in Paint. Yeah. Because of the caliber of tool. And you know that there's UX research going into those things. And I would argue that there's some fundamental human factors principles being applied to those tools as the artist is using those tools to express themselves. I think, uh, yeah, that's really interesting too. Yeah, fascinating. All right, that's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode, enjoy some of the discussion around human factors, topics of interest, go listen to some of our other episodes, especially like the agriculture one. That, that's a good one to listen to since we talked a little bit about that. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of our topic this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Discord community. Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news, find out about it as we do. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, leave us a five-star review wherever you're watching or listening. Tell your friends about us. That truly helps the show grow. And three, if you have the financial means to, and don't mind us being gone every once in a while, there's a little, you can support the show on Patreon. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about teledildonics? That's going to be the future episode, hopefully. If, but you can find me talking to interesting people in the Human Factors community, and we've actually got episodes up this year. It's amazing. You can go and, talk, go and find us at 1202podcast.com. And if you want to come chat to me personally, then find me on all the socials, K, and other variations on that. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. If you want to tune in for a little bonus conversation, go and find our full discussion on YouTube, Twitch, any of the streaming platforms, LinkedIn as well. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the AT, uh, T-Mobile carrier outage that happened today. Go check that out for a post show. I said as for me, and thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. Welcome to the Safe and Effective Podcast, a show that dives deep into the world of medical human factors and user experience. I'm your host, Heidi Merzad. Are you passionate about making a difference in the medical field? 
curious about the science behind designing usable, safe, and effective medical devices? Look no further. Every episode, we bring you exclusive interviews with experts from industry, academia, and government as they share their insights and experiences in the rapidly evolving world of medical human factors. From case studies to regulatory updates, we've got you covered. Stay ahead of the curve and learn valuable lessons that make a real impact on patient quality of life and user experience. Whether you're an industry expert or a novice looking to expand your knowledge, Safe and Effective, the Medical Human Factors podcast is for you. Join us as we explore the world of human factors and its impact on the medical device industry. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned and remember, be safe and effective.